Okay, uh, we are still in our, uh, our study of First and Second Peter and the two letters that Peter, uh, the apostle, wrote, uh, and we have called it our prepared series. Uh, I'm going to try to do my, my brief key recap, actually, you know, briefly, because we have a ton to cover today, but I'm really excited to cover it. This may be a long one. If it is, you just go home and, and tell Jesus how mad you are that I shared God's word longer with you. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so he wrote these, uh, these letters to believing Jews. These are Jews who had converted uh, and had moved out of Jerusalem, and they left Jerusalem to escape the intense persecution they were receiving from the Orthodox Jews, uh, who did not like the idea that they, were, uh, that they were actually converting. And they escaped to live among the Gentiles and the Gentile nations because they thought they might be able to get some peace there. So they, it was all throughout the nations of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But not long after they get to Jerusalem, they run into more, or after they get to uh, the Gentile nations, they run into the Romans who gave them a ton more persecution. Because the Romans were ruled by a, a nut job named, uh, <laughs> that's the best way I can describe him in history. If you look him up in history, it's a nut job. Uh, was Nero, who was just a wacko and he was brutal and cruel and did crazy stuff. I really think he was a psychopath, but he actually set Rome on fire himself and just sat and watched it burn for six days. But when the people found out the, you know, that it was him or the rumor that it was him, he just blamed Christians. I mean, that was the easy thing to do, and nobody's going to question him. So when the Romans uh, heard that, they started really persecuting Christians. So they just were out of the frying pan and back into the fire. So Peter wrote this letter to teach them how to be faithful despite all the suffering and all the persecution. Now today we're going to see how our confidence in suffering uh, can lead people to Jesus. How people see us being confident, rather. So uh, here's the other side of that, though. When, when believers whine and when believers are constantly complaining or just surrender, they're not going to lead anybody to Jesus, right? I heard someone one time call those whiny, you know, discontented, uh, attitude-type Christians uh, Eeyore Christians, okay? Eeyore Christians, and I'll explain why. How many of you remember the old cartoon, Winnie the Pooh? Raise your hands. Okay. Dave had, like, Winnie the Pooh shirts he wore to school. Anyway, how many of you remember his, his, uh, his pessimistic and uh, kind of bummer sidekick, Eeyore? How many of you guys remember that donkey, Eeyore, right? Okay, well, Eeyore was always negative. He was famous for being negative. Let me give you some of his lines I love. Uh, when someone would say good morning to Eeyore, he would say, if it's a good morning, which I doubt. I mean, that was his mentality. When they talked to him about his house, he said, not much of a house, just right for not much of a donkey. <laughs> Eeyore needed to be on antidepressants, but we all have those Eeyores in our lives, and I highly doubt they inspire anybody, right? And so Peter wanted to encourage his readers to, you know, be the exact opposite of the Eeyore-style believers because he knew the world is watching, and they're watching how we respond to suffering. They want to see how we handle it, right? And he was trying to prepare his readers to be positive and faithful in suffering so that people would see that and take interest. So that being said, I titled today's message, uh, The Eeyore Experience. Now, that's as quick as I can get through it. Let's jump in. 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14. Now, we're going to cover some deep stuff today, so try to, I'll try to stay close to my outline, but I mean, you know me. So 1 Peter 3.13 says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. This means the world. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So Peter starts off verse 13 with something that kind of sounds like a contradiction. It sounds kind of contradictory. Because he said, Who can harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now remember, these people were being persecuted. I can just imagine his readers going, I don't know, maybe... Nero and the Romans, because that's what we're going through. But then he turns around and he says, but even if you should suffer, 
He just said, who can harm you? And now he's saying, but even if you suffer, so even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And here's where I hear his readers thinking, I sure don't feel blessed. I'm persecuted at every turn. You ever felt that way when you're struggling? Like you're supposed to be joyous and suffering. You're going, I just don't feel that joyous. Anybody ever feel that? This is kind of what they were probably feeling at this time. But Peter really wasn't contradicting himself. He was just sticking to the context of his letter, right? Remember, context determines meaning. And the context is how to endure suffering through obedience and confidence in Christ. That's what this letter's about, and that was the theme he was sticking to. See, the word blessed here doesn't mean a stage of euphoric bliss and joy where, you know, everybody's happy and owns their own unicorn. That's not what this is talking about. It's from the Greek word makarios, and it means, every time I hear that, I think of makarena. God help me, I don't know why. But anyway, uh, meaning favored or highly privileged. So blessed here means favored or highly privileged. And the reason that is is because believers who are suffering and knew that if they endured it, they would glorify God, those believers were highly privileged in the eyes of God. They were favored in the eyes of God. Why? Because in the middle of that suffering, in the midst of their suffering, when people see them standing strong and being confident, it glorifies God because it makes them appear to have the same attitude Christ had. They are being like Jesus when they suffer and stay faithful. So that's why they are favored in God's eyes. So what Peter meant here by harm wasn't what we were thinking. He meant who can change your position in Christ or the position in Christ of those who are zealous for God despite their circumstances. So basically he was saying, listen, no matter what they do, they can just harm you here. They can't change who you are. You are an eternal child of God. That's what he was trying to tell them. See, believers need to stop looking at suffering as a lack of blessing or as a punishment. Now, let's be honest. Have you ever looked at what's going on in your life and thought, why, God? Why am I being punished? Anybody ever do that? Now, we've all had that. I'm not going to make you raise your hands. I don't want you to lie. But we've all had those moments where we're like, God, why are you doing this to me? I try to do what's right. And we get all Eeyore-ish, right? But we need to stop looking at suffering as, as a lack of God's blessing or a punishment. Because, look, Jesus suffered more than any human being ever will and ever has. And we know he wasn't being punished. He was being faithful, yet he suffered. As a matter of fact, because Jesus faithfully endured suffering, we can have eternal life. I love this, Isaiah 53, 4. Isaiah 53, 4, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are what? healed. Now, does any of the stuff he went through there sound like boatloads of fun? That was suffering. You think you're suffering because somebody in your family doesn't like your church. You think you're suffering because the government says bad things about Christians. Hey, he was being beaten. He was being tortured innocently so that we could have eternal life. He knew something about suffering, and it certainly wasn't a punishment. Now, I love how the Apostle Paul puts this in his letter to the Romans. Look at this, Romans 8.18. He has a unique perspective on suffering. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with what? The glory that is to be revealed to us. I love that. He's saying, Listen, yes, we have sufferings in this life. Yes, things don't always go our way. The world doesn't like us. We knew the world wouldn't like us. All those things are tough, but remember, if you live to be the average age, you're going to be 75 to 80, right? What is 75 to 80 years of on and off suffering compared to an eternity with Jesus Christ where there is no death, no suffering, and no pain? He's saying, see how it, stack, it stacks up against that when you th- start feeling sorry for yourself. I love the way he put that. Now, one thing I find strange is temporary suffering 
to accomplish a goal shouldn't be foreign to us. Because even the unbelieving world believes and practices a version of it, and even a version of what Peter was saying here. How many people have heard the old sayings, hard work pays off? Anybody ever hear that? How about no pain, no gain, the cheesy 80s shirt? How many people heard that? Right? Right? This is kind of the same thing because, I mean, athletes, actresses, actors, businessmen, all successful people had to suffer some to get there. You know what I mean? And I know you're thinking, yeah, there's those kids who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Yeah, but they still suffer because, trust me, the suicide rate hasn't changed from the wealthy to the poor. Okay? There's still discontentment and pain. But even all those people we look up to had to pay their dues. They had to suffer. If you're a doctor, you're in school for like 12 years. I had a doctor tell me one time, people think we're rich, but it takes us 20 years to pay off our student loans. Right? I mean, everybody has to suffer to get where they are. That's something we should be used to. The difference is that the thing that the world suffer and work hard for is only temporary, and it's not going to mean anything a thousand years from now. It's not going to mean anything. Right? But the things that believers work hard and suffer for are eternal. And can not only give us peace, but bring others to Christ. So he's trying to put perspective on that. See, the world may persecute and falsely accuse believers. I mean, that happens all the time. And they do it, especially governments, they do it disguising it as tolerance. You ever notice that, that right now there's a big push for tolerance with everything but Christians? Do you notice that? I mean, tolerate this, tolerate that, but don't tolerate those Christians. Listen, the world is going to pers- persecute us. It, it's it's going to come after us, but it doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change who we are. Because we are blessed because this world is not what I'm looking forward to. You know, if this is all we have, Paul said, we of all men are most miserable. Can you imagine if life was just about being born, working, paying bills, right, and dying? And then flowers growing out of you. Can you imagine if that was all life was about? Wouldn't that be depressing? Knowing that that's as good as it gets. But see, we know better. This isn't what we're looking forward to. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus reminded us of this very thing. Look at this, Matthew 5, starting in verse 10. He said, blessed are those who have been what? Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. This means persecuted for doing what's right. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is what Peter's uh, letter was to people who are suffering with. Uh, it says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now granted, there is a lot of punishment and a lot of suffering we can receive from this world, because the government, I, I'm going to depress you for a second, okay? There's nothing we have the government can't take. Do you know that? So, As you're going home and and thinking of all the nice things you have, remember it could be gone in an instant if they want to take it. They can take anything we have. They They can take our possessions. They can take our money. They can take anything we have. They can even take our freedom. But there's one thing they can't take, and that is God's promises for me and for every believer. There's nothing they can do about that. Nothing. And I rest in that. See, we are God's people, and we will receive everything he promised persecution or not, no matter who's in the White House, no matter who's in the State House, no matter who is in uh, the United Nations, God's promises are going to be true. And I love this in Romans 8. I keep referring to Paul, but I love how he put this, and he's kind of wordy. He says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's talking about Jesus. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing... We'll be able to separate us uh, from the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just, 
This statement, first of all, he overboard sold it there for a little bit, don't you think? But what he was saying is, remember, no matter what they do, they can't take the most important thing, and that is the promise of eternal life with Jesus. That's what he was trying to say. So when our faith stands strong, despite all the world throw out, throws at us, people will notice that. I've literally had people come up to me before and say, I don't understand what you're so happy about. And listen, I felt like saying, yeah, you don't see me all the time. But there are, you know, I was talking to a really wealthy man one time, and he said, I, you know, he said, I don't get it. He said, I can get anything I want, and I'm not happy. He said, you basically can't get anything, and <laughs> you're happy. I'm like, thanks, you know. But my happiness, I told him, my happiness isn't based on what I have. It's based on who I am. I'm a believer, and I know someday I will be with Jesus, and that is so important. And when people see that we're willing to do that, we're willing to stand strong amidst all this persecution, they take notice, and they know that whatever it is that's motivating us is, is supernatural and powerful, and they see that confidence, and a lot of times they want to have it for themselves. So they ask you how you get it, and the door opens for ministry. But those who pull the Eeyore effect and whine and complain about everything, they never lead anybody to Jesus. Listen, I don't... I, this, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm gonna. I don't like hanging around bummer Christians. You know who I'm talking about? The Eeyore-style Christians? The ones that are always talking about how everything's going wrong. Gas prices are high. The government's doing this. The government's doing that. It's miserable. I just hate them. I'm scratching through life every day. I'm going, oh my gosh. Stay home. You know, you're not inspiring anybody. Listen, all that's going on, yes. And they were seeing terrible things during the, the, empire, uh, the Emperor Nero's reign, they were seeing all kinds of terrible things. But set yourself apart from that and realize that none of that affects the fact that you are his and he is going to bring you home someday. And that's what he was trying to get these people to believe. So what Peter was trying to say here wasn't a contradiction. He was saying those who suffer like Jesus uh, will be blessed like Jesus. Now, next Peter tells his readers how to endure suffering and why it's important. All right, now... He's going to teach the right attitude for suffering, but this, is, this gets kind of complicated. It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Okay, so Peter gave two important commands here about how to withstand persecution for Jesus, and they're very important. You can't overlook them. First, he said, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Okay, now the word sanctify in the Greek is as hagiazo, uh, uh, and it, it's this, this word literally means to dedicate or regard as holy. To dedicate or regard as holy. So basically, this means every believer should reverence Christ and make him the most important part of their life. Everything should be centered around him. Reverence him as holy. That's what this means. Sanctify Christ in your hearts. That's what that's talking about, and that's so important, right? Peter, Peter meant that believers need to change the way they think, change their perspective a little bit. It's not what you get in this world that makes you successful. It's not how much you have in this world that makes you successful. And if you're in the pursuit of it, you will realize there's never any satisfying it. Right? What's, what's important is what's at the center of your life. Is it God? Because if it isn't, there's an empty spot in the center of your life that can only be filled with God. The Apostle Paul addressed this topic also if you look in Colossians chapter 3. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. So this is saying, if you're saved, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. 
for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is real, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. See, what Paul is saying is you can't have the priorities and goals of the world and be, and be godly. It just, it just doesn't work. Because in the middle of pursuing your wealth and your power and your status, you lose sight of what's important. Now, listen, I've talked to people who are not believers and who are very successful. And in the end, I say, well, was it worth it? I've asked many people, what do you see when you look back on your life? And they see a lot of things that don't matter. You know what? The lake houses, the cars, the homes, the money, the bank accounts, those are nice. But I wish I would have taken time to know my kids better. I wish I would have taken time to know my spouse better. I wish I would have taken time to know my Savior. Those are the things that matter at the end of the day. Things like, like faith and love and, and worship and sharing the gospel and family. I mean, those are the things that are important. Those are the things that will make your life seem worth it one day when you're staring the inevitability of leaving this world in the face. And when you focus on those things, not only will you be closer to God, you'll be less stressed. Because finding a close relationship with God and finding peace in the things he's given you is easy. What's not easy is trying to find peace in things you have yet to attain. That is not easy. That's actually very, very difficult. Second, he said to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So here's the thing that happens, and I know, I know that this might sound like, you know, like I'm pigeonholing this, but those who really sanctify Christ in their heart that really makes God priority one, you can't help but want to read. I can always tell when I'm shifting away from God, he's not still priority in my life like he should be because I lose that desire to study. But the more I put him as a priority in my life, the more I want to know about him. Listen, when you first made your spouse your priority, did you not try to find out everything about them? Did you? You know, listen, when I first realized that Jenny was the one I wanted, I set my line, right? Made sure I had the right bait. No, I'm just kidding. No, I wanted to know everything about her. I wanted to know everything about her. I, she was beautiful. That was obvious. You could see that. I wanted to know everything about her. And when Christ is at the center of your life, you want to know everything about him, and you want to read his word. And when you're in that phase and you're reading like you should, you learn about him. And then you're able to make a defense about what you believe and why. Now, the Greek word for make a defense here is apologia. How many people have ever heard of apologetics? Anybody ever heard of that? It's defending the faith. It's a study about defending the faith is what that is. That's where we get that word, right? So it's saying believers should make Christ the center of their lives so much so that they are desiring to know him and it causes them to read and study and know more about him. And the more they know about him, the more they can defend him and share him with other people. That is so important. And when I say defend the faith and give an answer, don't take me wrong. I'm not saying go and fight about doctrine. and fight. That's ridiculous. I never understood that. People want to fight about doctrines, what they believe, about denominations. Listen, that's how the devil gets his foot into Christianity, is denomination. And fighting over what these silly little rules and bylaws are when we should all be unifying, trying to win people for Jesus. That's what we should be doing. When he says make a defense, yet with gentleness and reverence, he means be able to dispel any myths or misunderstandings and to share the love of God that changed you with others and why. That's what he's saying, and I think that's really, really important. Because listen, the world isn't going to believe in something you can't even explain, and you certainly can't defend. The world just won't believe in it. All right, now, 
Next, he said they should live their faith so that no one will believe any false accusations. I love this. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience. Remember that. Keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Listen, no one who suffers for doing something wrong is blessed. Listen, I, I'm, I know this sounds terrible, but, you know, I've been in jail ministries before. And I'm, I, listen, I'm not judgmental. I know that everybody in this room has done something that could have landed you there if you'd have gotten caught. Okay? But when I go talk to them, one of the things I tell them is I'm not here to get you out of the judgment that you've earned. If you've stolen, you need to pay the price. If you've committed a crime, you need to pay the price. I'm here to teach you about Jesus and show you how he will walk with you through this. I believe in justice. I don't feel sorry for someone for going to jail if they committed the crime. I mean, that may sound terrible. I hate that you're going to be locked in a cage, but I hate even more that you made that dumb decision and didn't seek help before that. right? And it happens. Don't take me wrong. That's what he's saying here. If you're suffering because you did something that was ungodly, or you surrendered and gave in to them, and things aren't going well in your life, well, listen, there's no blessing in that. You're, that's called getting what you deserve. But if you're doing what's right and still being persecuted, he's saying those people will be blessed. And when you live a life that's godly, can anybody, if I stop for just a second, can anyone here think of that one person in their life who, who just depicts Christ to you? Can you think of that one person? There's several in my life that have. Now, do I think they're perfect? No. Do I think they sin? Absolutely. But when I think of them, I think of the goodness of God. And if somebody were to say something about those people to me, I would immediately defend them because I have seen no evidence of that in their life. I have seen nothing but the love of God in their life, so I'm going to defend them. That's what he's saying here. If you do what's right, even when you're falsely accused, people have noticed that you've lived right. And they won't believe the things they're saying about you. Now, now we're going to get into some deep stuff. Okay, so if you're a note taker, here's a good time to take them. So 1 Peter three eighteen through 20 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, listen, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, people often get confused about these passages, and it's almost funny to me when I read all the interpretations of it. Some of them are just nuts, right? Like some people believe that when Jesus, uh, in the three days when, you know, before the resurrection, that he went back in time and preached to the people who perished during the flood because they didn't get a chance. Okay, first of all, there has never been a human being alive on this earth that did not have a chance. It doesn't exist. They had a chance. As a matter of fact, Noah preached to them for 120 years. I mean, I get bummed out if the church doesn't grow or if a few people get upset. Can you imagine preaching 120 years to nations and only eight people join your church? You must be thinking, maybe I should have been a deacon. You know what I mean? <laughs> maybe I'm not good at this. But 120 years. So this is not talking about giving them a chance. They had a chance. That's not what this is talking about. So people often get confused about these verses, but if you read them for what they say, they're, they're kind of self-explanatory. It says, For Christ also died for sins once and for all. And this is referring to Jesus' sacrificial death, obviously. And this was Peter's way of doing something really, really brilliant. 
he was comparing the Old Testament sacrifices for atonement to, the, to Jesus' one-time sacrifice for atonement. That's what he was doing. Remember, most of his audience were Jews who had converted to Christianity. And Peter wanted to bring to mind what they used to have to go through. He's like, you know, at one time you had to offer these sacrifices time and time again. Now you have eternal life in Christ. He wanted them to compare the way it was and the way it is in their lives, right? And let me explain that to you. Because he needed them to be thankful for what they had. See, here's the way that works. They, the Jews used to sacrifice animals. And the reason behind that is the Bible says in Leviticus 17:11 that the life of the flesh is in the blood, right? So when they would sacrifice an animal, an animal can't sin. They're not human. So that was considered a perfect sacrifice as far as its blood was innocent of sin. Blood symbolizes life. Sin symbolizes death. When they would shed that blood and spread it on the altar, it was giving the life-giving force of blood to cover the death-bringing force of sin. That's what that symbolized. But here's the problem. No animal is eternal. Okay, they're not eternal. And I've, people have asked me a million times, will my dog be in heaven? No. So make it heaven for him here, because it ain't going to be there. Right? So here's the thing. And believe me, if there's one thing I want to be wrong about, it's that. I love dogs. But animals are not eternal. So since they're not eternal, since they will die someday, that means that their blood cannot be eternal either. So whenever they would have the sacrifice of an animal, they would have to keep going back every year, trying to seek this temporary atonement year after year. But when Jesus came, he was all God and all man. So the blood that ran through his veins was the eternal God's blood. And that blood could cover sin forever after one time one time having it applied to you you follow me so he was saying just as he died for sins once for all he was reminding them listen you don't have to do those dumb things anymore remember who you serve and remember what you owe him because he took away all those silly sacrifices that couldn't guarantee anything permanently and gave you a one-time faith offer believe in the blood i've shed and it will cover your sins forever he was trying to get them to be stoked about their position so that they would be more confident and be able to face persecution better. Now notice the next thing he said was made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation. So the word spirit is used two times in verses 18 through 22, and both times it's the same Greek word, pneuma. Uh, it's kind of a general term. It's like, a, a, like breath being breathed out. It's where we get our word pneumatics from. Okay, which is another story, right? But the, the basic translation of this scripturally was, uh, was to be like a spirit or a ghost or something supernatural like that. Now, how you determine what kind of spirit is being spoken of is by the modifiers used to describe it. Okay, the spirit in verse 18 is described as something that makes people alive in Christ. What spirit makes people alive in Christ? You can answer that. The Holy Spirit is the spirit that makes people alive in Christ. Third part of the Trinity, just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. So we know in verse 18, this spirit makes people alive in Christ. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, that spirit is described differently. And it, refer, it refers more to like a human soul, right? Like a human soul. And here's the two main differences of that usage of spirit. First, it's plural. It's spirits versus spirit, right? That's the first thing you got to realize. And the second thing is it's described as a spirit or spirits that are now in prison. We know that the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with being in prison. He brings freedom, right? And if you are free in him, you are free indeed. So we know this is not talking about the Holy Spirit because these spirits, plural, 
are now in prison, and there's no reference to deity whatsoever. So let's break this down. So how did Jesus make that proclamation? He made it by the Holy Spirit through Noah's preaching for 120 years. All right, now this is really important. Who did Jesus make this proclamation by the Holy Spirit through Noah to? The spirits or souls who are now in prison. Referring to all those people who would not believe during that 120 years of preaching Noah did. Right? All the people who refused to believe for those 120 years. Only eight believed. And eight? I had seven. Only eight believed. Right? And that's Noah's family. All the rest of the world perished because they refused to believe. Those are the souls that he's talking about who are in prison. Now the next logical thing people ask is, so what does it mean when it's talking about prison? When it's talking about prison, it's talking about a region or a place. And I'll get to that here in just a second. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Right? So the spirits are souls that are now in prison. This is referring to those who are not delivered from God's wrath. That's really, really important. And it's simple. They refuse to believe Noah. Now, here's something we've forgotten, and I want to make sure you understand. Salvation has always been by faith alone, in Christ alone, through the Holy Spirit. It has always been that way. And it's just a matter of perspective. People in the Old Testament believed or trusted in the coming Messiah. They put their faith in a coming Messiah. The people who were alive when Jesus was on earth believed in the Messiah performing miracles in front of them for their deliverance. After his death, burial, and resurrection, we look back to the cross where our Messiah was sacrificed and defeated death, hell, and the grave. It's all perspectives of the cross. It's always been by faith. It's always been by the Holy Spirit. That's very, very, very important that you understand that, right? And the, the difference is just perspective. But Peter said only eight souls, this is Noah's family, believed and were delivered from the flood. That's important. They were delivered from the flood. All the others perished physically and they perished spiritually. And they are now the souls in prison. Now, that prison, what is it? Prison is from the Greek word philake, and it means a place of detention. Remember that, a place of detention. And the Bible refers to something similar called Hades. How many people have heard of Hades? Okay. Now, Nate spoke on this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But the Bible refers to Hades several times, and Hades simply means the place of the dead or dwelling of the dead is what that means. But Hades actually has two departments or sections in it. Okay, one section is called paradise or Abraham's bosom. You guys heard those words? Remember the thief on the cross was dying and he said, Father, me, Father, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, and it's known as paradise or Abraham's bosom. How many of you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? It says that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom and the rich man was in another department and could see him, but the rich man was suffering. Okay? Those are the two departments. So one section was called, uh, you know, Abraham's bosom, paradise. Uh, the other place was a place of torment. There are flames there. It's like hell. And this is where unbelievers go, and they are detained until the final judgment in the lake of fire. It is a place of detention. Okay? So the spirits in prison were those who did not believe when Noah preached, and they are now in Hades in that section awaiting the final judgment. That's what that's talking about, all right? So, and Peter reiterates that only eight spirits or souls lived and were delivered from the ark, or delivered with the ark. Now, in verse 21 22, Peter compares the Christian baptism to these eight delivered souls. And here's another big area of confusion. How many people have ever heard of this, 30, uh, this 21 through 22 and been confused? Listen, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Has anybody ever read that and been confused? Be honest. Baptism now saves you, 
It says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God uh, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So there's two very important phrases here you've got to pay attention to to make this less confusing. And that is corresponding to that and saves you. First, it says corresponding to that. That means he's referring back to the last topic, which was the eight people that were delivered from the Noahic judgment, from the flood, right? Now, Noah's family was the ones delivered from the wrath, and they were delivered and put on that ark because they affiliated themselves with Noah. They believed what Noah was saying about God. They affiliated themselves with that, and they got on the ark, okay? Now, baptism here. Baptism has a literal and a figurative meaning in Scripture. Very important. It has a literal and a figurative meaning. The literal is to be immersed in something. And so, like, when we submerge someone in water, that's why we do it. It's being immersed. That's one definition of baptism, the Greek word for baptize. Now, the, the, other, the other side, there was literal and figurative. The figurative side means to be affiliated with something. See, in the Christian baptism of both, we are immersed in water to affiliate ourselves with Christ, to show people that we have believed. Okay, that's what the Christian baptism is. Okay, and 1 Corinthians 10, though, it should clear some of this up because it refers to those who crossed the Red Sea as being baptized unto Moses. Yet none of the people that crossed the Red Sea got wet. It says they went through on dry land. So how were they baptized unto Moses? Well, it's the figurative meaning. What happened was Moses said, God has stand back and see the salvation of God. The waters parted, and he said, if you believe me, enter it, and we'll escape then. Everyone that walked into the midst of that sea affiliated themselves with Noah. I mean, with Moses, rather, knowing that what he was teaching was true, and they trusted him enough to walk in it, and they affiliated themselves with Moses, which meant they were baptized unto Moses. They believed what God was teaching through him, and so stepping into the sea was their affiliation. You follow where I'm going with this? Okay, you guys still with me? <laughs> so convincing. Anyway. So when the eight, those eight people got into the ark, they were affiliating themselves with the teachings of Noah that God had brought through Noah. They were affiliating themselves with Noah because they got on the ark, and that affiliation delivered them. It delivered them from physical death, right? That's very, very, very important. Now, before we move on, let's remember the context, okay? Remember, he's talking to believers, mainly Jewish believers, but believers, and he was teaching them how to remain faithful and endure suffering and persecution. He was not teaching them how to get saved. Why? Because they already were. So you have to scrap that. When you look at 1 Peter 3, you can't say, oh, this is talking about how baptism gives you eternal life. First of all, we know that it doesn't. John 6, 40, he who believes has eternal life, right? Now listen to this. This is not talking about salvation. This has nothing to do with salvation. He's talking to believers, Right? And he was teaching them how to be faithful, not how to be saved. And he was teaching them how to be delivered when they were being persecuted or suffering. He was also teaching them that a godly life gave them a clear conscience so that when people accused them, no one would believe it. That's the context. So Peter wasn't saying it was necessary to be baptized for salvation, and he actually clarified that. Look at this again, 321. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not what? Nothing up there. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's saying this is not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, 
having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Okay, very, very important. Okay, Peter said, corresponding to the deliverance of those eight people, baptism now saves you. Then he said, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He was trying to remind them, we're not talking about the ceremonies that you were raised with, the spiritual cleansings and the ceremonial cleansing and washing. He said, this isn't talking about anything literal. That's what he's telling them, not the removal of filth from the flesh. This is not the literal definition. He said it was an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So simply stated, affiliating yourself with Christ during persecution will be what enables you to successfully endure it. That's what that passage means and nothing more. We just complicate it. Listen, God always delivers the faithful. Always. And I had someone tell me one time, well, what about the ones who died in their persecution? He still delivered them. They're in a better place than we are. I don't, maybe this sounds morbid, but have you ever known someone that's passed on and you think, I kind of envy them? You know? They're not dealing with all this. They're with Jesus. You know what I mean? So one way or another, he always delivers the faithful. And that's what Peter was trying to teach in this. And everybody gets lost in it because they want to debate doctrines as baptism for salvation and all this other stuff. Listen, pay attention to who he's talking to. He's saying, if you can affiliate yourself with Christ, when the world suffers and, or makes you suffer and persecutes you, if you don't give up, if you say, I don't care what you do to me, I am a Christian, I believe, I'll always believe, put me in jail, kill me, take everything I got, I'm still going to be his, and there's nothing this government's going to do to take it from me, it's going to be mine, and if you hate me, I don't care. You hated Jesus before you hated me, it doesn't matter. I am who I am, and I refuse to be anything else. When he sees that boldness in you, not only will others see it and want to believe, but when he sees that boldness in you, you will be blessed and you will be delivered. That's what this is talking about. But to those who have fallen to the Eeyore effect, the ones, those miserable Christians who make other Christians, you know, not want to be around them, they're not going to lead anybody to Christ. And God has never promised to deliver them from their persecution because they've deserved it. But those who are willing to stand during persecution, God promised he would deliver them. Now, I know that's a lot to throw in in 40 minutes. But understand this. If there's ever been a time in the history of this world we need to learn how to endure suffering, it's now. Now, it's nothing like what Nero put on those people back then. But believe me, I don't know if you've noticed, they're becoming, the world is becoming more and more hostile to God every day. Every day. And just because we are peaceful doesn't mean we're silent. Believers need to stand up for what's right, hold their ground, show the love and gentleness of Christ, yet be bold enough to stand for what's right, and God will change this place. But as long as Christians hide in the backgrounds and hide in their church houses and say nothing but complain to each other, the world's just going to keep getting worse and worse. You know what we need? We need people who are willing to step out and be bold about their faith and be willing to stand firm when they're persecuted, and that spreads. That kind of confidence spreads, and that's what Peter was trying to teach there. I'm going to go ahead and close. I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads. This is your first time. We always like to give an invitation. And by invitation, I don't mean coming down front and all that stuff. I just, I just mean I want to pray for you. So while every head's bowed, if there's anyone here who's not sure where they stand or just want prayer, just make eye contact with me, put your head right back down and slip your hand up either one. Bless those people. And I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. I remember those faces and I pray for them. Because whatever it is that's on your heart, I want God to talk to you about it. And if you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. But for those of us who are believers, Peter's really, this, these letters could have been to us. Because we live in a world that is turned on God. 
And we have a choice to make. Can we be shining examples amidst the darkness or do we just fade into it? We need to be the shining examples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do. We just thank you for your love and your compassion and your grace. I'm so thankful that you can love us despite us. There's nothing we have to offer you. We can't trade or exchange anything for the gift of eternal life. But you gave it to us free. Because what your son did was enough to pay for the sin debt of the world. And all we have to do now is believe that and trust it for our eternal life. So whoever's struggling with that, remove whatever's holding them back and let them trust in that. And I pray if they do, they contact us. Because we want to walk with them in their new faith journey. But God, it's so important that as believers, we don't look at our salvation as the last step to our faith. The world is getting darker and we are supposed to be the lights of it. Bless our spirits to come alive and desire you and sanctify you as Lord in our hearts and let us desire to know you and defend you so that we will become that beacon of light that draws people out of the darkness for we feel the time is short. Use us. God, we just pray as we leave here, you would keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.